stability for us, you know, at that point was just to have a roof over our head, uh, a warm bed to sleep in and a hot meal to eat at that point. So if we had those three things, we were set in, in, in our eyes. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Hey, this is Matthew Del Negro, and you are listening to 10,000 Nose Podcast. You hear how I did that? I think that was my version of the uh, the typical disc jockey voice. Uh, so anyway, welcome back. Uh, we have, what do we have? We have a really inspiring guest today, Stephen Benedict, but I want to give a quick shout out to all of you that have ordered hats and t-shirts from the 10,000 Nose store at 10,000nose.com slash store. That link is in the show notes. Uh, I had an order from Singapore this week, which is just bananas to me that people in Southeast Asia are listening to 10,000 Nose. I love it. I'm slightly shocked by it, but very cool. Anyway, thank you for that support. Thanks to all of you who have left such great reviews lately. I saw some new ones that were really generous and specific. So uh, thank you very much. And today, today we have Stephen Benedict. He is an elite athlete in track and field. He's hoping to compete for Italy in the upcoming Summer Olympic Games in Japan in July and August. But what you're about to hear is an extreme story of someone overcoming incredible odds to not only compete on such a high level, but just to be alive, really. He and his brother went through numerous foster homes throughout their childhood, and I don't want to spoil the episode by revealing too much, but Stephen has sustained so many losses in his life that it was amazing to sit down across from him and experience his positivity and his ability to look at everything he's gone through, not with denial at all, but just gratitude really blew me away. And he's also giving back through a program he created called Fostering Success, which brings athletes and celebrities together to help kids just like him. You'll hear a little bit about that. Of course, there will be links to his website, et cetera, in the show notes so you can support him if you feel moved to do so. He is quite the entrepreneur and brander as well, so lots to learn from Stephen on top of just being inspired. And I left about a minute of my rambling in the open so you could hear how his story came to me in the first place. I feel very lucky that it did, and hopefully you will too. Here he is, Stephen Benedict. Now, having a show that's all about overcoming, you get incoming emails, people want to be on the show. And a lot of times you're like, I, everybody does have a story. I really mm -hmm. believe that. They do. And, but a lot of times I'll get emails and then you, you kind of look further and you're like, oh, okay, it's, that's really cool. I don't know if it's definitely, you know, part of the show. Yours, I got the email from Wendy mm -hmm. who works yeah. with you. And I looked at the, I, I think I actually just saw this email um, this morning before okay. you came. And I was like, the original thing I was like, 
you see my response. I'm like, I'll take a look at this. I'm busy. Right. I just like briefly took a snapshot. I'm like, done. Like, <laughs> your story is so incredible and so perfect for this show that I could literally just leave you in here, go to town and get a coffee and come back in an hour. And I think this would be a good episode. So I'm going to kind of get out of your okay. way a little bit and let you tell all the listeners kind of what you've been through, because mm -hmm. it seems like you have really been through the ringer. I mean, I'd love mm -hmm. to just kind of go back to your childhood yeah. and your upbringing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, gosh, where do I start? Uh, so, I mean, I guess we just start from the beginning. Um, pretty much I, at the age of uh, four months, I was put into foster care. My mother put me into foster care. And, you know, obviously very unstable, very, you know, not good conditions for myself. Uh, then I was put back into her hands, you know, uh, and then I had a brother who was born. So we're two years apart, you know, which... We were living in and out of hotel rooms when we were younger. We were, uh, it was a very abusive situation. My father, my birth father had died when I was younger. I have no pictures, nothing of him. Uh, I, all I know is that I have his name. My brother has his kind of his physical characteristics. He has some uh, bad hearing, eyesight, and things like that. So that's kind of how that was divvied out uh, as far as pictures or anything like that. Nothing. Nothing. N nothing on the board. It's how it's, old were you when he died? Uh, I was two years old. Two I was years two old. Two years old. And then you were put into the foster. System I was put into foster care twice. So once at four, at four. months, and then put back in my uh, my mother's hands. And then we were put back into foster care when I was, gosh, I was four. And my brother was two. Then we were put into foster care permanently for six years. Wow. Yeah. So it was because uh, the reason for that was a lot of instability, a lot of abuse. My my mother started dating another gentleman, gentleman used very lightly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. we were living at a uh, motel rooms in and out of that uh, very unstable life. And he saw it fit to just pretty much lay his hands on us, beat us whenever he thought uh, it was when you were good that for young. Him. Yeah, when you were. Yeah, I was hospitalized. Oh my um, god! So. You know, it was, uh, it was, I want to say our, well, my childhood, my brother, I felt my childhood was very excelled in the sense that I had to be a father figure for my brother. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of the memories that I did because I sheltered him a lot, you know, took a lot of the absorption from everything and, you know, in and out of foster homes, probably about three foster homes until we were finally in a foster home for about three years in okay. Randolph, New Jersey. So tell us, so that's all Jersey. It's yeah, all Jersey. that's all Jersey up and down the East Coast. Union City was, uh, Hackensack was where I was born, but Union City was kind of in and out of where we were living and maintaining for a while. So when you, you know, when I think of, uh, you know, foster care, mm -hmm. I'm thinking as a kid, you're going, I, I don't want to go to foster care. That means I don't have my own family, my own safety right. of my home, but you're coming from a situation that's so bad, right. you're getting beaten by this guy. Did, like, were you able to even compute it back then? Did you have, uh, was it a relief to go there because of what you were getting away from? Or were there, was it a whole new can of worms that you were into? Uh, you know, I think there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of play on a, a lot of different things. Definitely, there was 
I felt like there was more stability for us going into foster care, even though stability for us, you know, at that point was just to have a roof over our head, uh, a warm bed to sleep in and a hot meal to eat at that point. So if we had those three things, we were set in, in, in our eyes, um, you know, going into foster care. I mean, the first thing that we had received were trash bags to put our stuff in and that, that was our luggage. Uh, so going in, you know, and that and that's where we would really much carry all our stuff was whatever clothes we had at that time, which wasn't much. And we were just moving around, just trying to find our place and, um, you know, just feeling safer than we were. You know, so we got rid of, I want to say we got rid of the abuse situation, but the instability and the mistrust and the kind of uh, longing for somewhere to belong was still very much a part of who we were. And were there other kids from other families there with your brother and and yourself? We did have other foster brothers and foster sisters, you know, stepsisters, but they were part of the families that we were being integrated with. So So it wasn't like there were other kids in your situation that were in those houses. They were the kids that actually lived there. Yes. There was families that, so they have foster families who take in kids, you know, and obviously nowadays there are a lot of larger foster families that take in multiple kids. So they're kind of almost like a community house. Uh, but then it was more of kind of more of an intimate setting, I want to say. So it's kind of evolved a bit more. And you never were split up from your brother. You guys were always together. That was a huge blessing. We, you know, that rarely happens, but yes, we were never, we were never split. Yeah. And yeah. is your brother, are you guys still in each other's lives today? Oh, does yeah. your brother live out here or... No, my brother lives back on the East Coast. We're very close. We've always been very close. Um, and he lives back on the East Coast. He has a house. He has a great job. He's married. He has two beautiful girls. Um, actually, the one is just about to be baptized this month. So, Congrats. You know, yeah, yeah. He's, That's he's, amazing to he's hear this great. because there are so many people um, that just complain about so many things. And to hear this, that two of you went through this, you're both thriving is just, it's inspiring to me. It's really cool to sit down across from you and hear this and hear where you came from. I'm wondering like, what were the, you know, were there jealousies from the kids that lived in those houses? Were they kind of uh, not accepting of you, like having an additional kid in the house or, or did they pull you in or maybe it was a mixed bag with different families? What was that what was that like? Like, what were some of the lessons that you learned living under someone else's roof? I think one of the biggest things for myself was that I was I was always very observant. So I was very quiet, very monotone, and I would always take in my surroundings. And I was always protective of my brother. My brother was totally opposite. We were two totally different dynamics. He was very boisterous, very belligerent, you know, within the foster homes, you know, bouncing off and back. And for me, it was more about, you know, just being very aware and, you know, being more of a protective aspect. But um, as far as the other kids and the other children that were in the houses, uh, we had in our, in our last foster home, we had two sisters and an older brother. They... They made the house, and even my parents at that time, my foster parents at the time, they made the house and the family feel very, very homely for us. And, you know, we were very accepted to the point where my brother thought that that was our permanent home until we got, until we were adopted um, legally. 
and permanently, then that was a whole another different situation, a whole different transition where, you know, obviously, like I said, my brother thought that that was our permanent home. So was he angry when you he, left it? Right. He was angry at my adopted parents for, for taking, taking them away, thinking that he was being taken away from his family now. So now he was a little more aware. He was a little older. You know, obviously when we were younger, he didn't know what was going on. Doesn't even have really that many memories of that time. So, you know, kind of things progressed in that sense. Me, I knew what was going on. What, how old were you when you guys left the foster system and were adopted? I was eight and my brother was six. Okay. Yeah. So he was still, he was young, yeah. but that was still enough time to have an attachment there. Right. Right. Yeah. It was about three years we were in there. Three years, three and a half years. And once so. you were adopted, did you guys live in that house for like through high school and did you have some steady... Stability and was it close to where you were before? Was it in the same community or did you kind of move elsewhere? Actually, we were in, so our our foster home was in Randolph, New Jersey, which was southern New Jersey. And then we moved to Bergen County, New Jersey, which was up north, first town right outside of New York, Fort Lee. And that's where we stayed for predominantly the most, the rest of our growing up and through high school, through middle school, through elementary school, we were, you know, we were super blessed. You know, yeah. we got, we got adopted by two amazing individuals. My mother was a teacher, second grade teacher. My father, he was ex-Vietnam veteran. And then he went on to work for Merrill Lynch and the New York Stock Exchange. So we had the very, I wanted to say we had, in them, we had two extreme dynamics where my mother was very boisterous and very bold Italian and just involved in everything we did and super protective of us. And my father was kind of like the joy of life. And he was just uh, living every day and, you know, just showing us, you know, all of the extremes of things and just kind of really showing us the fact of that, you know, what you had before life is not like that. You know, you know, there's a lot more to it. And my mother was just, you know, involved in everything. She got us involved in sports and music and art, um, you know, great educations. So we were super blessed to be involved in that family. How early did sports come into your life? Were you doing it when you were in the foster homes before or no? Was it not until your mom got you in? No, I don't think, uh, no, we didn't, do, we didn't have many interactions with sports going in uh, foster homes because, you know, the times were so short um, and schooling was very scarce in and out. So it wasn't until we actually were adopted. Then we had steady education. Then, you know, and I had to repeat some grades, you know, because we were kind of a little behind moving around, but it wasn't until then. And our first sport was, I did martial arts for uh, the first six, seven, eight years of my life. Uh, I did judo for 10 years, you know, so. From age eight till yeah. like yeah. 18? Yep. Yeah. And uh, that was my favorite, my favorite sport to do. I broke this arm in a, in a national tournament. Uh, I was, I was really excelling in that sport. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and what about track and field? When did that come into play? Gosh, track and field came in. I wanted to say the first time it came into play was when I was in 
summer camp and they have kind of like these junior Olympics kind of campy Olympics things where they go around and they get all these kids from all different camps and take the fastest kids from this camp and they take the strongest kids from this camp and they bring them all together and they have these camp Olympics and I think it was like all over the state and I wound up taking third out of all the state. Wow. How old were you? Gosh, uh, maybe just nine. Yeah. Nine years old. Holy cow. So I was just, uh, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I just liked running. And I always knew, I knew I was fast. I was always told I was fast all the way through camp and, you know, even through the other sports I had, you know, even through football and middle school. Um, the name they put on my back was like, uh, was um, Flash. Yeah. So, yeah. So I always had that, that kind of inkling on it, but it was never really on my radar to run track and field. I was always doing martial arts or the next big thing that I got into was football. Yeah, I was playing football, and the track coach. Were saw you me. like a tailback in football yeah. and defensive back, back? Yeah, and cornerback. Yeah, yeah. So I did that, and and then the high school track and field coach saw me on the football field, approached my mom, talked to my mother. What grade was that? That was uh, that was ninth grade. Freshman was, yeah, year. freshman year. Yeah, freshman year. And then um, I was like, I really didn't want to do it, and I wasn't interested. I was actually going to go into wrestling because it was winter sport, and it's very close to judo. So wrestling and judo, very, you know, close. So I did that and I went out my freshman year. I was like, all right, I'll give it a try, whatever. I went out my freshman year and wound up winning like county championships indoors right off the bat and um, and just kind of stuck with me the rest of the four years there and just built up into it, got to compete in some of the nation's biggest races like Penn Relays, up and down the East Coast, um, went to nationals. So it was... Uh, I want to say in that realm, it's very hard for a high school to get that type of experience and see a broader picture of what the track and field world looks like, really. You know, it's tough because it's a, such a close niche community. Yeah. And if you're running in high school, a lot of the high schools, they're, they're in their leagues and that's all they get to see. They don't really extend outside of that. They don't try to go to bigger meets or anything else that gives the athletes kind of a, a broader picture of the sport, which will, in the long end, want them to continue in college and, you know, and know that there's all these different levels to it. Right. You know, it's more like they don't get the notoriety that they, that they should for it. And so wh- how did you get brought into that whole just because you were you were that good that somebody plucked you and and kind of i had to work my way through everything just like everybody else does yeah. you know it wasn't it's not you get to a certain level it's just like it's just like you and acting right you get to a certain level and you're the cream of the crop in my league or and and i'm running at the top times but then there's another level and you get to and now everybody's at that same level right and then you got to compete there to get to that top level and then you go to another level and it's just these guys are just phenomenal up there. Yeah. So, you know, there's always somebody that's going to be better and there's always somebody that's, you know, going to have a little more natural talent. But I think where I make up for that is my work ethic. You know, I'm I knew that relentless. was going to be the answer. Yeah, just I'm just right. from, you know, seeing your website, just seeing everything that you you are and knowing the little that I do know about you at this point is uh, I figure you – you can't do all of the things you're doing without that insane mm-hmm. work ethic. And I try to tell my kids that all the time. It doesn't, talent is, you know, there's always going to be someone better than you. Mm-hmm. But what do you do to, to get, uh, to, to make up for that? 
Um, so what about, I, I want to get into that more specifically, what, what that was like in mm -hmm. high school transitioning into going and, and going up and down the East coast. Mm -hmm. But what, what was it like, um, in school coming from, uh, having to repeat classes coming from like, how did that mess with, if it did with your confidence, with your identity as a student or not a student, or did you have, uh, you, you know, I think of my grandmother who, uh, w was thriving in Italy, born there, thriving, 14 years old, parents moved her over here and she had to go back. And she tells the story. She had to go back as a 14 year old. And in Astoria, Queens, she was in like first grade and then she quickly made her way up. But she always talked about how embarrassed she was to sit in that classroom being older. Did you have that kind of experience where you came to your adoptive family and you were new to school and you're maybe older than the kids that are you're in class with? If so, how did that affect you? How did you kind of get through it? What'd you do? I don't think for me, I don't think it was ever an age thing and being like feeling like I was behind the eight ball in a lot of the uh, classes. I mean, yes, I was at some point, but I think that was where I was. My mother stepped in a lot. My adopted mother stepped in a lot. Like I said, she was so bold and protective of us. So it, it kind of alleviated me playing that role for so many years with my brother that it was like, okay, I can kind of hand this over to her and I can start acting like a kid a bit. Uh, I think the biggest questions for me, and, and that's, you know, the biggest things for me is I, I had a bunch of question marks about my past and I still do to this day. Uh, it's, you know, and we'll get more into that, but I, I mean, in the sense of that, you know, in that time period whereas more i think nowadays it's more it's more of a hot topic and it's more relevant adoption and foster care and people more aware of it and they're getting more involved in it back then it wasn't and kids weren't very knowledgeable on it parents weren't even knowledgeable on it and they didn't know all right well you know you look at a kid from foster care well okay well he's an orphan he doesn't have a family and you know he was lucky enough to get picked up or whatever um so some of the things that i got that i had to deal with one i had a lot of bottled up unresolved solutions um, unresolved problems from my past that kind of overflowed in high school um, I had to go see somebody to talk to him about and therapists and things like that. Like but getting then, into fights. Yeah, getting into fights. I was very hot tempered. Um, you know, kids were, you know, their their biggest comebacks for me were, well, at least I have a family and blah, 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 you know, this and that. So you're, 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 you're constantly going back and forth and trying to find your identity. You know, you're trying to find, well, who's my family? Where did I come from? I'm like, yes. Do I call my adopted parents my parents? Yes, I do, without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, they have done more for me and had given me a second chance at life to do some amazing things right now. And I'm still building on that. And they're really much the driving force behind what I do right now. Um, but for most of the part, yeah, it was those questions that I had about my past. And, you know, there's still a couple of lingering questions there that, you know, 
that are tough to talk about and, you know, tough to try to, you know, when you don't, you get curious and you're curious like as a what, kid. I mean, and you don't yeah, have yeah. to if you don't yeah. want to, but like, what's an example of that? So uh, when I, when I go back and this was, this was something that I found out not only probably about two and a half years ago, uh, my father that died when I was two in our adoption papers and what the story we were told was that he died in a car accident uh, and that while I was in the car and my mother was in the car, I have a scar from that. And that's how he died. He got thrown from the car and whatever. That was a story told to us to protect us. And that wasn't the actual story. And I didn't get the real story until like two years ago where I have actually all my documents and all, all the things. And it says in there that he was actually incarcerated at the time and he had hung himself in jail. So it's things like that, that kind of, you know, you get little blows hit you and, and it's like, wow, you know, all right, yeah. well, what was he in jail for? Which I don't know. You still don't know. Still don't know. Um, I talked to my aunts, my uncles um, on my birth side and they said, he, you know, he was, he was a violent guy and, you know, he had a hot temper and that was one of the reasons why him and my mother weren't together. And, you know, there's so many questions about, and that's going to take some more digging. I have his actual, I actually have his social security number hanging up on my fridge at home. So I guess that's the best lead for me. But even when, even when I went to go back to ask some questions to like my grandmother, which, you know, at, at that point there was, you know, there was a lot of ego involved on my side where I was like, well, I don't want to have anything to do with that side of the family. You know, that's, it was such a horrible point of uh, my life and I was just lucky enough to have a second chance at things but then you get over there and you get you get more curious and you you know you grow and you become a better person and you want to learn what do you think it is in you that wants to what like what is it that you're because you're like a you're like a detective now right right uh what is it that you're searching for or you think you might find in those stories or in knowing is it just, I, I, I mean, I'm trying to think for myself what that would be. I guess it's. Well, I think, I think there's more, you know, if there's more family that is out there, I'm sure I'm almost positive that they don't know about me and my brother. You know, it's like their question mark to us. So that automatically means that we're a question mark to that whole side of the family. Um, you know, and it's, it's not, it's not about rekindling things. It's, it's not really about kind of, but I think everybody wants to know where they came from yeah. or at some point in time, you know, you, like, yes, I feel like my life didn't start until I was eight years old when I was adopted, but there's all those years behind it. And then there's all these closed doors. Uh, there's all these closed, even on my mother's side too. My mother's side, you know. Was, Is your mom still, your birth mom still alive? So that was, that was the, like two, uh, it was about a year ago. I was starting this whole thing and I was like, all right, well, I think it's time that I reach back out to my grandmother to get in contact with my birth mother to have a conversation with her because I haven't spoken to her since I was 10. That was wow. the last time I spoke to her. Are you tight with your grandmother though? Um, or, I was, or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was. She lived in Fort Lee, which was funny because she came across one of my aunts in Fort Lee that lived in the same senior citizens building. And they wound up talking and wound up finding out that they were connected. So it was such a weird yeah. you know, coincidence. But when I did go back to reach out to my grandmother, I was tracking her. I, don't, I had her phone number and her phone didn't answer. So I wound up finding my uncle on Facebook and reached out to him and 
he reached out to me and said, hey, let's have a chat and whatever. So he told me that my grandmother passed um, probably about a year or a year before I, I called him. And then I said, oh, well, you know, I was trying to get some information on my mother. I wanted to talk to her, you know, just, you know, hear her story and, uh, you know, just get a little more about her. And I found out that she had passed two years from cancer. Um, so it's almost like I just two missed. Two years ago now. Well, from, yeah. Like, yep. So you found this out about the same time you found out about your dad. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So it was just kind of like. Did that? Yeah. Sorry. Go yeah. On. No, no, again. Well, I was just, did that really uh, kind of knock you back at a, at a, in a way wherever you were in your life two years ago? Did that news, like, uh, you know, just kind of, was that a wallop that, that kind of yeah. made you stagger in your career, in your life? Or how did that, Gosh. how did you? <laughs> you know, that's funny. I felt like I, if I look back on things, I've had so many of those moments, um, you know, from my adopted years to my adopted parents to even these these parents, um, and we'll talk more about my adopted parents. But uh, the when I found that out, I felt like you know there was a couple of things. Like I took a whole year to really kind of take toll of who I was, who I was becoming, and kind of really just clear up a bunch of stuff on the inside that I was working through. And I think that's you know it's totally healthy, and and I had to reassess of where I was as an athlete, who I was becoming, who I want to become, what did I want to stand for, you know, and, you know, what was the voice behind what I was doing? And I feel like these are some of the pieces that I needed to really fill in in order to know about the bigger picture of what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to be. And when I did find that out, one of the biggest things that came to mind for me is that it was, you know, the ego factor comes involved, you know, and I was holding on to something so tightly where I was just like, you know, you let us go. You didn't protect us when we needed it. And I was, that was like fueling. And then when I finally let that go, it was too late to have the conversation that was needed with my birth mother because I let it go because it was my own ego. Because of anger. Yeah, because of anger. And so I, what's the advice then for people listening who probably don't have as you know, extreme right. uh, circumstances that, that you have or had or, or have, I guess. Uh, but what's your advice about that? Like with anger and, and let, you know, how do you view it now? Well, I, th- I think, I think that's, that's a huge thing. And I think it starts with ego. And I think that it, you know, we need to really step back and look at some situations before in the grand scheme of things, perspective wise, is that we get angry over the smallest things and then we let them build and they accumulate into these mountains. And then we forget why we were originally angry. And then when it's time to really be like step off of our pedestal and be like, hey, this is like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And this is ridiculous it's too late and people do that all the time and they're waiting till, you know, they're waiting till the death hour of, you know, the people that they say that they're the closest with, but yet they're the furthest people away from them. Um, And I think that happens with family all the time. Um, I mean, I've seen it so many times with, with, you know, families now is that they get into fights and they don't speak to each other for months and months and months over the stupidest things, whether it be like something at a Thanksgiving dinner and somebody's drunk and they say something and this and that. And then all of a sudden they're not talking to each other and 
they don't even like the reasons for them not talking to each other are not substantial at all. Yeah. And they're just losing time. They're losing time over just ego, just ego. And I think if we can just know ourselves a little better and know what triggers us and kind of not react emotionally because we are emotionally charged beings that, uh, I mean, we, we would live such greater expansive lives. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's awesome to hear you say that. And that people are just hearing this. They're not seeing you, but like, meanwhile, you're like a, you know, like a jacked, like ball of muscle <laughs> that I'm sure could yeah. just, you know, it could hold your own. And, it, and it's, it's so great to hear that mindset or that kind of philosophy on life, you know, particularly from a guy who, uh, you know, sounds like you were getting into scrapes when you were a kid and all mm-hmm. that stuff to hear you uh, at this point is, is really, um, it's kind of cool to hear. Um, how does that, so you were playing football, mm-hmm. you were running track. I'm sure that a lot of that anger was a fuel for you in a good way. Like mm-hmm. you, you channeled it into the sport. Right. How does that change for you now in your training now? How does that, does it change your outlook on it? Like, do you still go dig into the well of, can you still pull those things up and use them for performance-based things? Or how, how have you changed in that way? Or are you kind of more evolved in a certain way? I feel like I've definitely had a, a uh, well, first and foremost, I think we all evolve. And I think, you know, if we're not, then we're, we're just being stagnant. You know, and that's, that's one of the main things about humans is that if you're not evolving, then you're just existing, right? And um, I definitely had to over all of the situations. And, and the one thing I feel like is with my story but across the board, there's been so many key elements that I've had to learn from. And, you know, from being adopted at age eight and then wound up, that fueled me for a while. And that became, you know, I was getting a lot of kickback and lashes from that. So that was kind of like my fuel from like, I guess, from like 10 to about 23. And then the next big wallop came when I wound up losing both of my adopted parents when I was, my mother uh, diagnosed at 24 and lost her battle of cancer, um, bone marrow cancer within a year. And then sorry, th- man. three years after that, my father was down in Florida and uh, visiting his brother on a retirement home. And he wound up getting thrown from a golf cart and hitting his head and going to an irreversible coma where I had to take him off of life support within a week. Oh my God, So, uh, so that so was, uh, you know, I mean- I appreciate it. I really do. You know, and uh, I don't, there was a time that whole period right there was a very dark time. I want to even say almost, you know, there was a lot of dark times, but I want to say that period of time was just uh, a blow to my brother and I, in the sense that we felt like we were back at square one. You know, we, we had been adopted and then we wound up losing our parents again. So it's like, well, now it's just me and him again. And now we have to fend for each other again. And now we have to, all these things got thrown on us, making funeral arrangements and uh, taking care of the mortgage for the house and all these things. And while I'm still trying to put together 
a career in coming, just coming out of college. I was just about to graduate college when my mother passed and then, uh, and then she passed and then, you know, trying to figure out where I was as an athlete, if I still wanted to run, if I still had it in me. And, you know, and I remember that year I was, um, headed towards Olympic trials and wound up tearing my hamstring. I was just under so much stress and it was just, uh, it was just one thing after another. What year was this? This was uh, 2008. 2008. And where were you undergrad? I was at, I went to Rhode Island University and then I transferred to Montclair State University, finished up there. Um, But yeah. Well, I was was actually going to ask you right before you said that, what was the biggest no you've had? Because you've had a lot of no's in your life. And it's even before you were starting to say, wow, there are so many different things. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you just answered that maybe, which was that period was the biggest, the biggest no. I mean, it's it's, uh, uh, unbelievable to me, your resilience that, how how did you, how'd you bounce back from that? Uh, gosh, like I said, it was, <laughs> it was a very tough, like, it was a very tough and dark time. There was a lot of drinking going on. There was a lot of not giving a shit. Um, uh, you know, there was just kind of, I remember telling this to Wendy and, you know, and, and just sitting down and be like, that period of time, it's like my personality split. I was living two lives and it got to the point where one of those lives had to die or I was going to die, right? So I was getting to that point where I was living this athletic life and I was trying to be a certain caliber, but then I was going out and drinking till I was blue in the face, um, you know, dabbling in drugs, you know, and things like that. Being in with the wrong crowds is just- uh, And you're 23 at this yeah. point. 23. I was actually 24. And then, you know, it just went on for like three. And then after, after my father died, which was another three years after that, it just went on till about, gosh, 2010, probably. And it was just nonstop. And I want to say the only thing that kept me alive at that point was being in the physical health that I was and was being able to run and to having such a strong heart and being, you know, physically body, but also, obviously somebody was looking out for me too. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, yeah. it's not all me. And I don't, I don't sit here and be like, oh, I'm this and that. It was like, definitely not all me. You know, I definitely have a hand of God on me. Yeah. Know? I was going to ask you, what are your beliefs in mm-hmm. something bigger than us, whether it's God or yeah. the universe or what you, what you call it, how you, mm-hmm. what your relationship is to it. And also do you kind of look at all these things? Because really you have been dealt mm-hmm. more than your share of hardship right. from my perspective, I, I think. Do you ever ask yourself, why did I, why did this happen to me and what am I supposed to learn from it? And if so, mm-hmm. what do you think the answer is? What have you learned from it or how has it been a blessing in disguise? If you could call it a blessing, I don't know. I think for a very long period of time, there was, there was that aspect of why me, why was this happening to me? What did I do to deserve all this? And that whole, why is life happening to me, right? Instead of for me, that whole aspect. And then it switched. Then it switched after, it switched after 
when there was one night I was sitting out on my balcony and I was just like, and I, I grew up, I grew up as raised as Roman Catholic. I received all my sacraments, did that whole aspect, went to Catholic school through my mother and stuff. And then after all that, after everything that happened with them and, you know, going through my twenties and everything, I was just, I didn't totally lost connection with any type of spiritual aspect, God aspect or anything like that. I'm like, there's no way in hell that all this is happening to me before the time I'm 30 years old. And you're telling me that there's a, a maker that has actually set this in position and put this story in writing that it was okay for me to walk through this or I, that I don't even know how I got through this at this point, but now I do, you know, and, and, and when that turning point happened, I said, I was sitting out on my balcony. I said, look, and I got to the point I was, I was crushed and I was just like, God, either you take this from me, all this, this other aspect of me that is not conducive to what I want to do and what is kind of in my heart totally, or you, you get me off this planet and you, you take me home. That was it. And after that day, I remember that night, I was looking up at the sky and I saw two shooting stars, one right after another. And after that night, things just started to change. I had no urge, no inkling to start to drink or anything anymore. And I was getting things back on track with finding the right coaches for that believed in what I could do and my talents. And, you know, that's a whole different other aspect. but, um, it was just one thing after another. And gosh, I was going through like evictions in houses at that time. I was getting my car impounded, you know, things were such a mess. And to put those key pieces back into place one after another, after another, after another, it was the way that things happened were definitely not my, not by my doing, uh, you know, some of the sponsorships that came involved that just helped me along the way to, to move me to the next step, to be where I am now. Um, I have a, amazing relationship and it's just you know I'm at the point where it's like I'll I look back at it and I look back at my whole story in a sense of that it's not why did this happen to me it's what can I do with this story that other people need to hear in order for them to get through what they're going through and I think that that's a huge thing across the board for everybody. And like you said, when we were talking earlier, it was everybody has a story, right? And, but, and not everybody can relate to each other's stories, but it's the implements of, so it's the emotions attached to those stories that we relate to. So like through mine, you have like abandonment, you have fear, you have love, you have loss, like all of these feelings and emotions Everybody can relate to those on one level or another, whether they've lost somebody close to them, whether they feel like they're abandoned, whether they're bullied or, you know, they're outcasts or, you know, whether they're lacking love or whether they feel an unsurmountable amount of love, um, you know, fear on a daily basis of trying to become doing things that are different out of your norm and getting in a uncomfortable situation. But I feel like I've tackled all of these things so early that that's become the story. It's not the story at just all the things I've come through and whatever. It's not, I don't need it to be a crutch. I'm not looking to yeah. have a crutch. It's more of a catalyst for me. That's so, awesome, man. I mean, so. that's all. Well, a good question. Yeah. 
What do you say? Because I know there's someone listening. I know it. That is, what do you say to them if they're going, oh, he looked up and he saw two shooting mm-hmm. stars and all of a right. sudden now he's saying right. that God exists. And then right. these things came right. in like, this is bullshit. Right. Like, how do you answer them or do you not try right. to answer them? No. And, and my answer to that is that that particular moment wasn't the moment where I became, oh gosh, oh, my faith is so strong. And this yeah, and that, yeah. that's not the moment. It was a buildup. It was a buildup and it's still a buildup. It's still buildup now. I work on it every day, but I'm at the point where I've had other people around me that are close to me and they've, you know, let me know they've, I call it championing, championing me. And I do that with others where it's speaking life to each other, you know, and, and, you know, it's our, we are our biggest critics, right? Our own critics. And the fact of the matter is, is that you, I, in this day and age, you have to believe in something that is bigger than us. We'd be ignorant to not. What, I don't care on what level, whether it's spiritual, and I'm not a big religious fan, and I'm not, I'm not about religion. Religion is, is a, you know, is structured and religion is, you know, like a government. Yeah, it's like a man-made institution. Yes, without yeah, a doubt. It has politics and right. all kinds of And BS. that's not how, that's not how we were supposed to learn about, you know, spirit, spiritual aspects about ourselves, being in contact with, you know, a, a greater self than we are, a higher self than we are, because this is just our physical form. We, you know, we are spirit. You know, we are, we have souls. We, we, you know, we have something else that's driving us. Yeah. Uh, because this body, this body gets old, it gets decrepit and it dies. So there's got to be something more than this driving us behind things, right? Right. So- well, it's actually particularly cool to hear from you. Anybody goes to your website, you know, there'll be all the, right. the all the links and the yeah. show notes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you see you, I mean, you know, I, I, there, there's pictures there of you like coming off the starting block and you're, mm-hmm. you're uh, you know, you're a physical specimen mm-hmm. makes it that statement that much cooler to mm-hmm. hear you say, we're, this is all going away. Right. This is all just temporary. This is the vehicle that we're driving through life with, mm-hmm. um, so let's jump to let's jump to some of the 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 competition and let's also jump to some of the um entrepreneurial mm-hmm. and and charitable things that you're involved with right now cuz mm-hmm. your your story is so inspiring and and you're so plain spoken about it that it's just like there, there's no BS. There's literally no BS. I love the conversation, and it, it, you're it just feels like your heart's out on your sleeve. You're just like this. This is what it is. It's taken a long time to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's worth it because right. like what you're giving to people right now, and I'm just a, you know sitting across from you listening to this, and I, I mean the whole time listening, I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Let's just cut and print, cut and print. Let's get it out there right now. Um, so so tell us a little bit of how uh, kind of how far you've gone with track and field, you're mm-hmm. still competing from what I understand. Yeah. And, yes, and still have big aspirations. Yes, yes. And, and you're how old? 35. 35. Yeah. So that right there is inspiring. Yeah. And then I want to link to a little bit of how you're taking your position as an athlete and using it to give back, using it to create something for yourself beyond the sport, mm-hmm. because you are an entrepreneur. 
so let's let's get in first. Let's start with the the competition right now and your big aspirations for the future. I want to say that last year was a big building year for me. I had a transition in coaches, and it always takes about a year or so to conform to a new program, feel out your body, you know, know get that relationship built between the coach and the athlete so the coach knows what type of athlete you are and then also where you really excel and what you need work in. So that's, that was all last year. It was a rough year for me. It was probably one of my toughest years in a long time because the two years before it, I really didn't run much at all. Really? Yeah, I really didn't run much the two years before. It was just... Uh, I had a lot of nicks and knacks and I was still trying to find the right fit for myself. So it was- Were you still training? Yeah, I was still training, but I was training like on and off. I wasn't training as consistent that I needed to be. Uh, I was trying to find myself uh, a little better. And now where I am right now, training is going exceptional. I am way ahead of where I'm supposed to be right now. And I'm really, really looking forward to this upcoming year. I mean, I've been training since since August with my coach and uh, he really knows who I am as an athlete. He knows what I need. And I feel like for the first time, an actual coach is actually listening to the athlete and listening to me and be like, look, I've always thought I needed this and I, I'm this type of athlete. And he really, you know concurred with that and said, you know, yes, you know, this is what you need. And it sucks that, you know, you've been being trained this way for such a long period of time, but we'll take care of it. And we have been, and I'm looking forward to this upcoming Olympic games in Tokyo. And that's where I want to be at. And I want to really make a big mark there and uh, just go out there and, you know, um, throw some fireworks up there and, you know, and, um, so what's the time frame on that? When are the trials? What do you, how do you put it in your mind of, of goals? Because talking to you right. about goals right. is, you know, when you talk to someone right. on your level about right. goals, that to me is exciting. Right. How do you do it? Do you reverse engineer it? What do you do in terms of like the marks that you want to hit? When are the trials? What's the, give us. Trials are... Next end of June, July, uh, beginning of July. And at that time, I'll be- Beginning of July, 2020. Correct. Okay. So, and then the games will be in August. Okay. So it's a very short window. It's really, it's that yeah. close. Yeah, it's a very short window. Uh, and w- the tough part is, is that they had world championships, which I didn't compete in this year or anything, is that they had world championships, which is usually in August, but the dates got pushed back to October this year. So they're just finishing up their seasons now in the fact when they would be taking their downtime. So it kind of overlapped, which kind of puts everybody behind the eight ball, but we, I've been ahead of it, so it's great. But uh, is it politically bad for you because those people are at the world? No, for me, hey, that's, that works That works well for me. Because you want to be the Rocky Balboa right. unknown guy who's <laughs> exactly. come out there like, who is exactly. this guy? Exactly. Is it crazy at 35, though, to be even – like, what, what's the average age of, of an Olympian? You know, like nowadays it's so funny. It's like I don't – believe that we've even reached our human potential on things and the way that science is going and the way that um, we're finding more out about our bodies and and how to reach those maximal potentials. I think the longevity of the sports are becoming longer and longer and you're starting to see some really great things come out of more experienced and more savvy athletes that have been in the games for so long and that 
are really honing in on their bodies and knowing how to be coachable and you know, doing all these little implemented things. Like for myself right now, it's not even so much about working backwards from that. It's going day in and day out of those practices and laying it on the line, but then also coinciding with my coach, coinciding with my, um, my performance nutritionist, um, doing all my blood work, making sure that everything is copacetic and I'm being able to reach my potential on each and every practice. So you figure if you'll be able to, and doing all the recovery stuff as well, you know, it's a huge aspect. It doesn't stop at where we are on the track or off of our sport. It, continues to being able to do have to do like you know epsom salt bats mineral bats and um ice bats and sleep massages I mean, i've yeah. just heard so sleep. much lately about yeah. sleep do you know sean stevenson yeah. mm, he's no. big I, I may be having his last name wrong he's got a huge uh-huh. podcast and he talks all about sleep i heard yeah. him uh, you know with uh, tom bill talking right. about yep um, the importance of sleep and, you know, you hear it through Tom Brady talking mm-hmm. about it and that's kind of the new thing. But. Right. I do sleep stuff all the time. You know, um, I actually have, this is a whoop He's, monitor. You're like, I'm actually going to go, yeah. I'm going to take a nap right in the middle of this interview. <laughs> this is a whoop monitor. <laughs> this actually takes, you know, it, it tells me how well I recovered from the night before sleep every morning. So I know how much strain I can put on my body for that day. Um, I keep my room at uh, 60 degrees every night. I have um, a pad on my bed that, you know, cools out everything. Yeah. So the cooler the room is, the deeper of a sleep you can get. And the deeper of a sleep you can get, the faster and the better recovery you can get for the next day. So, awesome. so all these things in, in um, you know, it's just, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of science to it. Okay. But statistically, yeah. Yeah. will you be a lot older? First of all, what are the particular events that you're mm-hmm. going to be competing in? And then statistically, what are what's the rest of the field look like? Are a lot of them younger, or are there a lot of guys that are thirty five? Are there people that are older than you? I, th- you know, I think it's pretty spread out right now. I mean, you have a lot of young guys that are coming in, but I think that they're, I think that they're young and they're inexperienced and they're just kind of they get in the spotlight and they they lose their their grip on things. And then you have the older guys that are in there and they are composed and they know what they've come to do. And I feel like they're a lot. They have a lot more hunger in them because they are fighting a battle. But, you know, I've seen guys from, you know, the islands and things like that, Um, you know, uh, Kits and uh, Caicos, you know, there was a a guy there who was 40 years old running sub 10 in the 100. Wow. You know, so. What are your, what are your events? So I run the 200 and 400. 200 yeah my coach really wants me to run the four this year so we've been doing a lot of 400 work so for me to get into there and to do it um i'll have to be down in like uh 45 range you know so yeah um but you know i'm I'm looking forward to the work is i wonder if i ran the 200 against (laughs) you doing the 400 who would win (laughs) that would be good that would be a good race that would be a great race i think i might put my money on you yeah um that's that's incredible. Um, talk to me. How the hell are you doing this on this level? And then I could go to your website and see all the things you're involved right. with uh, entrepreneurially and and with the the charitable uh, foundations that, that you have. Give us a little. Give us a, a taste of all of the different things that you have your hands in right mm-hmm. now. Because from the outside, I'm going. How does this guy do this? Yeah, you seem singularly focused uh 
on what you're doing. By the way, I'm so fired up for you. I mean, like I, you, you better be there and you better be on a podium. I'm so fired up to hear how calm and focused and, and you just seem like you, you, you know exactly what you want. Um, but, but talk to us about how you juggle that on such an elite level and also you're accomplishing all these other things. Is it just an incredible team? Is it, you know, what, what, what is it? How do you do this? Oh, I do have, I do have some incredible people around me. I, I really do. Uh, but it's not as big as that it looks and it makes it look like. Uh, and I think that's, that's the, I think that's the sweetness of it is that I like to keep things tightly niched. I don't like to have too many heads on things because I think, yeah, and then it starts to come and it starts to turn into like a clusterfuck. It's just like everybody's all over the place and you get all these different things going on. But I think that, I think one of the main things for me is that I've seen, I've been in the athlete realm for so long. And I've, when I went to college, I received my graphic design degree and also marketing. So that plays a big part. I was always in art and always creative in that sense. But I think the biggest things for me is the experience that I've had from watching other businessmen and watching other CEOs and how they talk and, you know, being in that realm, but then also watching the athlete realm and watching what they don't do in the sense of that I feel it's the stream of things between sponsors and all that stuff has shifted so much is that where athletes used to be like, well, I'm this and this type of athlete, write me a check for this. That's the caliber I am or whatever. Now it's like, no, it's not like that anymore. Athletes are a dime a dozen. Companies are a dime a dozen. You have to know the value that you bring and the value that you can bring to a company and be multifaceted. And for me as an athlete, I've watched so many athletes and they're just struggling. Olympians are struggling. No, no sponsors, anything in that sense. They're relying on managers that don't do the legwork because all they want to do is, you know, they'll book them for meets and they'll maybe get them signed with a shoe company. But that shoe company doesn't want to pay them much that they just want them to wear their gear. So these are all, so you look at all those pieces and like, all right, where, where are the voids in there? And what is not being happening that athletes aren't getting the money? So it's not like, I mean, track and field is obvious. It's, it's not like football, baseball, basketball, where there's these lucrative contracts across the board. And there's these, you know, you have teams where they have these caps and then, you know, they get all this track and field soul, a soul sport. You have to do the legwork. You have to make a name for yourself. You have to be a brand of your own and you have to treat yourself as a business. So that's what I've been doing in, in the most part for myself. And, you know, I've, you know, built out a charity. I've built out, um, have another, um, another company coming out with partners in it called the, um, next generation athlete, which has to do with building out seminars for, um, health and wellness companies and, you know, going into CEO companies and going into these big, big branch companies and going in there and implementing the things that I do as an athlete and biohacking aspects of things of how you can reach your potential, but you don't have to be an elite athlete. You know, these are things that I do that you can implement yourself. So it's catering to whether it's the weekend warrior, whether it's the executive warrior or whether it's the elite athlete. 
you know, and yeah. um, it's a lot of people are very excited about it. It's, you know, it's getting ready to be launched. Um, that's one aspect. And then I also have the charity arm, you know, which is deals with foster care. It's called Fostering Success. And the aspects that I brought there were... I really want, I've been to so many charity dinners, which I'm sure you have too. And, you know, and you know how you get to that dinner and there's a certain point in that dinner where you know that they're going to ask for money and it kind of shifts the atmosphere and everybody's all about like, oh shit, let's get out of here before they start trying <laughs> yeah, to pick our pockets. The, when they have the paddle yeah. you're supposed to put up, I, yeah. I, I was just sticking like, it under my yeah, leg. Yeah, <laughs> break my paddle, throw it under <laughs> the table. Like, I don't want to have any. Walk away from the These paddle, guys right? are like, yeah, $10,000 over there. I'm like, oh God, get me another drink. <laughs> uh, so I've been to the, so many of those and I was like, man, I feel like that takes away from the core cause of what their charity is about or what their voice is about. So I've taken that out. And what I've done is I've, I'm putting together this documentary book where I'm bringing athletes and celebrities together and they're shooting alongside foster kids. I've partnered with a, uh, a foster agency called the Children's Bureau. They're the largest agency in the nation. They started the first foster care home here in LA and we do full day shoots with them. I have uh, food and lunch provided where they interact with the athlete or celebrity. So we're doing 15 female athletes, 15 male athletes. And that book is going to be documented. It's going to be sold nationwide. Proceeds will go back, you know, to some will go to the Children's Bureau. Some will go to funding the next project, but then it'll go into and sponsors will be involved in that book so they can have that monetized and that'll be a monet, uh, um, a source of income for the charity. Then we'll have a gala, but there won't be any silent auction. There won't be any of that. The book will be sold there. Tickets will be sold there. If sponsors want to get involved, more than welcome to get involved. And then ultimately from that stable, the highest one I want to go to is build a uh, foster home for kids that is that is impacted by sports, meaning having like big sports agencies and, and um, teams come in, you know, whether it's the LA Rams or the LA football club and building out this foster care home where it's, you know, each room has a different sport in it and they send athletes there and they, you know, can come once a month and talk to the kids and teach them different aspects, teach them different skills that'll help them more around. And I think that's a big thing is that, you know, we're, we don't teach our kids enough skills that transfer to real life. Um, and I've been lucky enough to kind of, you know, fall and stumble along the way and pick up those pieces and be like, all right, this works for me. I'm creative here. How can I implement yeah. this and just piece it together into some things that are, I feel within the next, you know, year or two. And, you know, as these platforms build out on everything, I'm, I'm very, very conscious about having everything relate to each other that I do. And I'm not running off on tangents. You know, and I feel a lot of people do that. You know, they like, oh, this looks shiny over here. Let me do that. Oh, this looks shiny. And then they didn't make no traction, yeah. you know, and they lose their voice. So those are some of the things that are going on right now. That's so, it's so great to hear. And when we're done, I'm, I have a few people that are popping into my head that I'm going to connect you with. Yeah, definitely. That have, uh, that, that may be helpful to that cause. I, I, I love the... Just it, the, your very pragmatic approach. It's like you want to help the kids. You have a, you have something that helps them. You love sports. You want to bring that in. You bring it in. Um, it it sounds it sounds amazing to me. And it, just to bring the whole thing full circle, 
we talked earlier about why did you go through everything you went through when you were talking about athletes not taking care of themselves, by the way, the parallels to my business are so almost direct for actors and and Mm -hmm. what's happening in the, you know, with social media now and people going out on their own and having their own studios developing so direct. But I thought, wow, this guy was forced to be the, the dad basically at four years old, that skill, which was a lot to handle back then is actually the exact same skill you're talking about for athletes. Mm-hmm. Cause you've got to be your own parent as an athlete or you get taken advantage of. They want you to wear their sneakers, but they're not going to pay you. Mm-hmm. You have to be like what your adoptive mom was to you. Right. You have to be the advocate, but you have to be it for yourself. Right. Right. Because you're not, like you said, it's not like you're, it's, it's not like you're getting contracts that are like LeBron, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's track and field. So you've got to be, right. you, you know, you've got to advocate for yourself. You've got to be smart about it. You've got to be a, a, a business person about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really inspiring. Um, I, I got a couple of little questions for yeah. you. Yeah, definitely. One, the word no, and this could be a simple yeah. answer. The word no means what to you? Oh gosh, the word no definitely means there's a bigger yes coming <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. And I think, I think it's on both, on both spectrums as well is like, in the sense is that you have to be able to accept a no, but you also also be able to give a no, you know, and, and being able to give a no means that you hold yourself at a certain value and you won't budge at that value. I think people are very receptive and easy to settle for the immediate gratification instead of saying no and biting and gritting their teeth a little bit for something bigger. That's awesome. Yeah. What about a go-to mantra, if you have one, for when everything falls apart, everything goes sideways? Do you have anything like a phrase, a favorite phrase you use, or mm-hmm. just a way of looking at things that kind of gets you through it? Yeah. I always say, I always say, stay in the process, stay in the process, stay in the process, even when you don't see the proof. So it's, you know, constant, constantly, you know, you're going to get highlights and it's part of the process, but you're going to get a lot more dings and you're going to get a lot more scratches and bumps and bruises along the way. And you're going to get a lot more of that little voice telling you to hang it up, move on to something else, or you're going to get the closest people in your life, family, whatever the case is, telling you to do something else. You're so talented over here, but your heart doesn't want to go there because it's so driven and it's so focused on this one area is like, that's the process. That's the process. And if you ask any of these guys who've, you know, are multimillionaires or whatever the case is, you know, Amazon. Yeah, Jeff Bezos, great story. There you go. I mean, right right off the bat right there. He stayed in the process, knew what he was had. He knew the value of it and look where he's at now. And now now he's the proof. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's so funny. I was going to say, are you following me around? I feel like I'm always like telling my wife, I just, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. That's always, it's like, yeah. I always say you have to be, you have to be in willful denial. Mm-hmm. Basically you, you see the, you see what's happening and it's not necessarily right. meeting the standards that you want at the time, but you, you kind of, yeah, you have to put that aside and stay with like, these are the things that I know are going to 
be progress. Mm -hmm. I, I, I completely agree with that. So last thing, Mm -hmm. um, if you could give your younger self advice, Mm. uh, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? Ooh, let's see. What age would I intervene? Probably when I was 16, 16, um, probably wouldn't be all through the earlier ages because I think the earlier ages when I was in foster care and everything, yes, even though it did suck and even though there was a lot of uncertainty and everything, but I feel like those years have really built out the foundation of who I become. So for me to take out the foundation would make the whole building crumble. Uh, so at 16, I feel like I started a long haul of hanging out with the wrong people and, and just being just being frivolous and just not being aware. And just, you know, that was my start of athletics. And I was like, oh, well, I'm known as an athlete through high school. And I walked through the hallways and this and that and blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was just walking on air and didn't care and had no repercussion and, you know, wish I would had started my work ethic a lot harder in high school as an athlete and everything because I always felt like I was taking the long road. And I always felt like I took a road where I had to learn the long way instead of when I could look back and be like, at that point, if I did this instead of that, I would have been here a lot quicker. Yeah. So, yeah. I would, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I yet, and yet the, I always feel like it's a trick question because right. one, that 16 year old is never going to listen to you. Right. And two, also the, everything that you've done leading up to sitting right here mm-hmm. makes you who you are today. And, and so whatever lessons you learned, that's one of the things they'll say on here all the time. It's like, you know, you did it. Like you, you, you made a bad choice. You hung out with the wrong people. You, you know, you didn't prepare for that test and you failed the test. Whatever it is, you got there for a reason. Now your job right now is like, what was the reason? How do I turn it around? And like, what did you learn? And I'm sure if you connect the dots, there are probably tons of valuable lessons in that period. And hopefully what I'm hoping is you're going to be holding up a, a gold medal and going, I was only able to stay this disciplined, be this calm under pressure compared to this, you know, 22 year old I'm racing against because I went through that and I was frivolous. And now I realize just how precious it is. And, you know, so that's what I'm hoping. Yeah. Gold medal, go USA, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just, just as it, I'll be running for Italy. (laughs) Oh, really? So, you know, uh, yeah, I switch contingencies just for my family's. uh, If I knew that at the beginning of the uh, interview, we would have done the whole thing in Italian. Oh, there you go. We should have done that. It would only be like a two two sentence. <laughs> interview. And then we'll just translate. My Italian would run out right away, but you know, subtitles. We'd be huge Italian. over there in Rome. Um, Stephen Benedict, yeah. thank you, man. I'm going to put show notes. I'm going to. I mean, I'm going to put links uh, to all of Stephen's mm. stuff in the show notes. So check those out. Um, and uh, thank you for sitting down with uh, me, man. I appreciate it. I, you know, I was been looking forward to this for about a month now. You know, I've 
you know, heard so much about you. I've looked you up and everything. And actually, you know, before I ended this, I wanted to, you know, ask if you would be a part of the next shoot for Fostering Success, get you in the in the documentary oh. book, you know, and we'll hook you up with a kid. And you know, awesome, yeah, man. yeah, I'd love to have you in Definitely. there. Definitely. Yeah. I like that too. You yeah. do it right on here. So I yeah. can't say, exactly. I can't say, no, this is like how the I paddle. I'm like, I got to break a, my paddle. A- <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd be honored, man. Yeah, Thank you. That would be great. Thank you. That'd be great. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right, Stephen Benedict. Let's do our best to narrow this down to the top three takeaways. Number one, I almost went with the fact that Stephen's adoptive mother got him involved with sports and how that proved to be a great outlet for him. And that is very important. But my number one is not any specific quote or section. It's just what I said in the intro. Stephen's overall outlook on life is something I think we all should think about every day and strive to have ourselves. He really went through the ringer and somehow he managed to retain a certain innocence, I think, despite all he suffered. I think that's maybe the biggest takeaway for me. Number two is related to number one, but a little more specific, letting go of the anger that usually comes from ego. I think it starts with ego. And I think that it, you know, we need to really step back and look at some situations before in the grand scheme of things, perspective wise, is that we get angry over the smallest things and then we let them build and they accumulate into these mountains. And then we forget why we were originally angry. And then when it's time to really be like step off of our pedestal and be like, hey, this is like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And this is ridiculous. It's too late. I've had a lot of conversations around this topic lately, but it's even more powerful coming from someone like Stephen, who not only has more to be angry about than most people, but also had some long stretches in his life where he was solving problems by fighting. When a tough guy says that anger is not the answer, it resonates even more so. So before you yell at that person who cut you off in traffic, just remember You have no idea what they're coming from or going through. And even if they did slight you, is it really worth pulling yourself out of whack to fight them? Number three, this one goes out to all the artists out there or small business owners. You have to do the legwork. You have to make a name for yourself. You have to be a brand of your own and you have to treat yourself as a business. I think it's important to hear this. I can tell you from a personal standpoint, this has been a challenge for me over the years as an actor and now with this podcast as well. I gravitate more toward the actual substance of what I'm doing than the marketing of what I'm doing. And while on one hand, that's great because the quality of the work gets better that way. It's also frustrating because you can look around and see other people that you don't necessarily think are putting out content as good as yours or doing whatever work it is that you happen to be engaged in. And you, you can think, why are they getting more attention? Well, as what Steven said, this is part of your job and it's actually a large part of your job. So if you can't afford to pay someone else to take care of the marketing and the branding, you need to start figuring it out yourself. And I definitely feel like I've grown in this area, but I know I have light years to go and I'm guessing that if you're listening to this, if you're an actor, you've been listening to this podcast, you may be in the same boat. So hopefully that takeaway from Stephen uh, is going to resonate with you and you can go see it in action at his website. He really does a great job with the business side of things. That is it for today. Thank you so much to Stephen Benedict for opening up. Thank you for listening. 
We've got lots of links in the show notes if you want more information about Stephen. And I hope you share this episode with your friends or take a screenshot of it, post it to your social media, talk about it if it inspired you and let more people know about 10,000 No's. If you can leave us an iTunes review, we'd love that. And most important, subscribe to 10,000 No's wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. And it's almost the holidays, so be sure to check out the store, buy some 10,000 No's hats and t-shirts for your loved ones. It'll help support the podcast. If you like today's conversation with Stephen, check the links in the show notes for these past conversations. Charlie Rocket, the Grammy award-winning music manager that lost a few hundred pounds and overcame a brain tumor on his way to becoming a Nike athlete. Top strength coach, super connector, and transformation specialist, my friend Jay Ferrugia. Or Rob Groupie, who now owns and runs one of the biggest CrossFit gyms in the country, but only after serving a seven-year prison sentence that turned his life around. You can also scroll through 10,000knows.com to see which other episodes may speak to you. For announcements and promo videos of who's next, you can follow me on social media at Maddie Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can email us at info at 10,000knows.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. Thanks again for listening and go enjoy your week. <laughs>